Hello, and welcome back to Do The Franchise. Do you know what? I almost forgot what the name of our podcast was then. Um, it's the best start. I mean, if we don't know what great. it's called, how is anyone <laughs> going to find us? Well, surely they're already on the episode, so they'll know what it's called. If they've clicked on us, they'll, they'll know. They'll have read the title. We shouldn't even Bell bother man. doing an intro anymore. I think we should this new series. We'll just forget the intro. We'll just it's like, screw hello. It. You you've read the title of this podcast. <laughs> you know exactly what's going on. Probably more than we do right now. Oh well, welcome back, James. Yeah, you're Jake, by the way. For anyone I'm who Jake, didn't... by the way. Yeah, we're gonna. We'll and mix I'm, it up. I'm also you, James. You can introduce. You can introduce us this season. Hey, um, f- fun fact, the hello, I'm Jake and I'm James is how I usually match our audio up together. So this will be an interesting oh, one for me this week. <laughs> shit. Sorry, dude. Do you want no to worries. just, should we just start it like <laughs> for the audience? We'll just go, hang on, wait, three, two, one. I'm Jake. And I'm James. That'll work. That'll work. <laughs> right. Anyway. I'm revealing all my trade secrets now. <laughs> you are. Everyone knows how it's done. The magic is it's it's out. It's out. Um, so for everybody uh, who's back with us today, we are launching our new series today, a new episode, a new franchise. We're moving away from the Batman, um, and it's Lethal Weapon, James. It's Lethal Weapon, Jake. I love this film so oh. much. Um, I, I'm we... so pleased that you enjoyed it because I know, obviously, I don't think you'd watched it for a little while before we decided we'd do this. No. Uh, but it's something that I watch on a fairly regular basis and love dearly. I think, I mean, I've texted you quite a lot throughout this one because we, we watch them separately. Sometimes James and I get to watch them together. But this one, it it's so well written. <laughs> like, it's just... The script is written by Shane Black. Uh, the movie was directed by Richard Donner. It is just a marvellous film. Um, it is. I don't really know. It's so... It's eight, 1987 was its release date. So it came out in 87. Um, it's kind of cemented itself into pop culture in many different ways. Um, it kind of invented the buddy cop movie, right? In a sense, yeah. I mean, this it, it, it certainly reinvigorated any sort of buddy cop type films it was it 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 pits two people in a a situation that's completely ridiculous but those two people are pretty much polar opposites of one another and just have Mm. to figure out how to get on and that kind of chemistry has been repeated you know you've got the rush hour films you've got kiss kiss bang bang yeah these films are all they all owe a huge debt to lethal weapon I mean, uh, Rotten Tomatoes gave it, um, I believe, 80%. Double check that fact. Yeah, 80% with a 7.6% IMDb score. So I, they're favourable, but yeah. they're not as big as I thought they would be. I kind no, of thought I'm, in my heart of hearts they'd be higher than that. I, I can't work out whether it's just that, obviously, the, the, the franchise itself, I think, is really well thought of. So mm. I wonder if it's just the... the the emotions I have for this film are, are all bound up with the other films as well. Yeah. So maybe I, I attribute a lot of the love I have for Lethal Weapon as a film is down to Lethal Weapon as a franchise. Yeah, maybe. definitely. Yeah. I, I was saying to you, I, I can't really recall the fourth one. I think it's got Jet Li and um, uh, Chris, not Chris Tucker, Chris Rock is in it, isn't he? Yes, um, Jake, yeah. I, right, I, Chris. I, and I'm thinking of Rush Hour again. I'm, I'm blending the two. Um, it's yeah, like I need. I'm looking forward to the fourth one and obviously the second one. But the first one, while we're on it, 
Um, it's it's a great film. Uh, it starts with Jingle Bells, uh, so we know it's Christmas. <laughs> Absolutely, it's definitely a Christmas film. Uh, there's loads all... of people that. Sorry, we'll argue about Die Hard being a Christmas film, but this yeah. is absolutely a Christmas film. Definitely, because it references them getting home for Christmas all the time, doesn't it? Um, yeah. Is Are all Shane Black movies at Christmas? Because I'm not sure. It seems that way, doesn't it? <laughs> it seems that way. I, I know, I think pretty much all the Lethal Weapon, the first three anyway, uh, happen around Christmas time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know um, that Iron Man 3 is at Christmas, as is Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, that's at Christmas. And I yeah. think... His Predator film was set at Christmas. He did a Predator sequel. Yeah, and uh, the director of this film, Richard Donner, his film immediately after this one was Scrooged. Oh, God, of course it was, yeah. (laughs) So you've got a lot of really cool Christmas references happening. And you mentioned the music. Obviously, the music, I think, is actually a key part of this film. The soundtrack's Mm. incredible. Uh, The music's written by uh, Michael Kamen and Eric Clapton. Is it really? Yeah, so all the guitar parts you hear in this film, it's all Eric Clapton. I don't think I've got that written anywhere, which is really big, bad oversight on my part. That That's all right. This is why we do this together, Jake, so we can cover <laughs> different things. But yeah, uh, Michael Kamen, for those that don't know, he's a, a, a music orchestrator, writer, arranger. Uh, if you've ever seen the um, anything that Metallica did with a live orchestra... Hmm. A lot of the orchestra was orchestrated and then conducted by Michael Kamen. So he's he's fantastic. They're they're both big hitters, and it really shows in this because you've got all that sort of almost like uh, film noir esque sax playing in the background. It's it's really cool. It's very noir. It has that vibe about it, doesn't it? Uh, Immediately when it's about the cop. Um, Obviously, our two main characters are Roger Murtar um, and played by Danny Glover. Martin Riggs played by Mel Gibson. And we're introduced to them in both very different ways. Um, The opening of the film is um, a lady trumping um, from a tower block in LA uh, played by Jackie Swanson and that is her suicide that's how it starts she's sort of I I actually put a note in here saying you know it's the 80s because we've seen nipples within two minutes of the screen of the film starting (laughs) yeah (laughs) you don't get that anymore no I mean that opening scene is is actually harrowing when she she did that jump yeah, do you know what? I was going to save this till the end. Can we save it yeah. till the end? We'll save that bit of trivia <laughs> to the end. But it, I think that's what makes that feel so real because it yeah. it was, and it's that just the. I think that's something that this film does differently to other buddy cop films. Hmm. Rush Hour doesn't have those dark moments. Kiss Kiss Bang no. Bang has some similarities, but it's not as dark as this film. No, I, 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 this... I yeah, I'd kind of forgotten what the plot of this film was, because um, obviously you get the bit where um, it's Murta um, goes to meet this old friend who's trying to get in touch with him. Who he was was he in the war with him? He says yes, yeah. um, and that's the guy whose daughter is the one that jumps off the tower block, and you find out that it's uh, a bigger 
a bigger bad going on underneath it all. It's not just a simple case. They never are in cop movies. It's never no. a simple case of uh, she just jumped. She was suicidal. No. You know, it's case closed. I, um, I love, I love that this film points that that out though. You know, they, they yeah. talk about you know that they're at certain points in the film they're firing ideas backwards and forwards and they look at each other and go, oh, that's thin. That's really thin <laughs> as an <Yeah>. idea, <laughs> but it turns out to be absolutely true. Um, but yeah, no, yeah. I think uh, the, the opening scene's great because it, it puts you in sort of gritty 1980s America and then yeah. it instantly cuts to a suburban scene with, with uh, Danny Glover and his family <laughs> all together uh, celebrating it. Yeah, and uh, this is a great ongoing gag throughout the series that he can never have, <laughs> Murtaugh can never have a bath in peace. He always That's gets so interrupted I, and he's I... always reminded how old he is. Yeah, do you know what? It was weird because obviously there's a joke ongoing in the movie about how old Danny Glover is, but I'd forgotten how young Danny Glover was in this film. So when yeah. you first see him in the bath, there was a little moment when I saw him and he was looking in the mirror that I thought he was John David Washington, you know, Denzel's son. Yeah. And I was like, because <laughs> of his hair and the way he looks in uh, in Tenet, and I was like, it, that, that, no. Oh, it, well, that's weird. <laughs> you just yeah. have a brief second of like... Oh, that's just what he looked like when he was younger. Yeah, I always was... associate Danny Glover with being the older guy now because that's just the way I remember him as being as, as growing up. Yeah, well, he, he was supposed to, you know, his character is turning 50 in yeah. this story. I think Danny Glover, when he filmed this, was 40. Yeah, so... yeah, I know he's not that old, is he? He's about <laughs> no. 75 now, so yeah, that makes <laughs> sense. Um, then we see Mel Gibson and his mullet um, playing Riggs. He's got a dog yeah. which doesn't really get fed. <laughs> no, in this movie, <laughs> that poor dog. I think he just sits in in the trailer with Riggs, doesn't he? He doesn't leave, yeah. and then then you see him at the very end. But yeah, yeah. he's uh, he's not uh, not a, a highly featured member of this film. No, I, I wouldn't make more of that that lassie dog, that collie. Um, then we, so yeah, you find out that Riggs uh, is a character that um, has suffered a trauma, his wife has died, and he has since been struck off as suicidal. He's struck off, isn't he? That's why he's in the trailer all the time. And then they bring him back and they, po- they partner him with Murta um, on what they assume is just a closed suicide case, right? An easy an easy case. Yeah. Yeah, um, They basically we, we get introduced to, to Riggs in his trailer and then we do get to see him on the job cuz he he goes to buy some drugs oh he does of course yeah 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 and this yeah. is this is what I, I, in my notes i wrote this is the best drug deal scene in a christmas tree yard i've ever seen <laughs> cuz <'Cause> it's <laughs> these christmas tree salespeople trying to get ri- trying to get rid of this uh, amount of drugs and Riggs asks them how much and they say 100 so he starts counting out like dollar bills <laughs> yeah. and they and they say no 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 and, and then he looks up and says sure up man I'll lose count <laughs> he's just yeah. counting out these dollar bills and I it, like the I like that scene a lot um, do, do you know that there's a, a, a semi-famous cameo in that scene I, I do I have it written down I think amazing it's we can say that till later as well um <laughs> Yeah, the that the man in the red shirt, right? You're talking yeah. about the man in the red shirt. Okay, he looks fairly fine. familiar, so we'll we'll leave yeah. it at that. But we'll give it give it away at the end of the podcast. You'll have to. Wait. I I like the the. I guess it's one of those things where we live in a culture in a society now where it's not necessarily appropriate to make light of mental health. Which yeah, this film 
deals with it in a more serious way, I guess, later in the movie, doesn't it? But for the beginning of the film with Riggs, a lot of the... You have the scenes in the trailer which are all very serious and they're shot seriously and there's no there's no joking there. Like, he no. is going to kill himself and he then he does tell... He tells Murta that later, but it, we do have those moments where he is buying the drugs where he says, let's get crazy, let's get crazy. Um, or where he's got the, the, the famous cameo drug dealer that we're going to talk about later and he says, just shoot him, just shoot him. And he like, you know, because he doesn't care whether he gets killed or not. Yeah. Um, and I guess that you have to be very careful now to play that scene and not play it for laughs. Yeah, no, I think this is one of the things um, that I... This film made me love Mel Gibson's work as an actor mm. simply because he was able to do the absolute, you know, funny, jokey, bantery bits with Danny Glover but the scene on his own in the trailer, like you say, where he's got the gun in his mouth, mm. that that is played straight so well, and it's absolutely yeah. um, it, not making fun of mental health at all. And there, there's a, a couple of little facts that I think are worth mentioning now about this one, because uh, some of them are quite pertinent to stuff that's gone on in the movie industry recently. Mm-hmm. The gun that Mel Gibson has in his mouth has a live blank in it in that oh, really? scene. And that was done to add to the tension. So oh. if he had pulled that trigger, it would have killed him. No way. So, yeah, so that, obviously, with everything that's gone on with Alec Baldwin recently, that yeah. fact really hit me hard. Like, that's that was the mo- one of the motivators for how well that scene's acted. And the other thing is, when, that se- when, um, when people saw that scene... Um, it, it actually opened up doors for Mel Gibson's career. It was one of the reasons, apparently, he got the role in Hamlet. Because mm, of uh, how intense he is. Yeah, uh, and specifically for that scene. So, like you say, I think the way they deal with mental illness, and you had a lot of films, obviously, around this time, uh, dealing with war veterans' mental health. Because yeah. uh, Riggs is a, a war veteran at this point. He's, yeah, you they know, reference he was special that a lot, forces, don't they? Uh, So he's... You know, this is um, a, a, a similar story to things you might find in Rambo. Yeah. It's just that, in some ways, Mel Gibson's character in this film has assimilated into society slightly better than Rambo did. Yeah. And then the war finds him again because his wife is killed, effectively. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, he has another struggle then. Yeah. So I think that the way that's done in this film... It's that underlying darkness that's different to anything you'd find in, say, a Rush Hour or in Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. There's a lot more things played for laughs in those films. Yeah. Uh, whereas this film, I think it still has that serious underlying sort of message, which is really, I mm. think it's what makes it a really powerful film. They repeat that later, that theme where Danny Glover thinks that Riggs is just faking it to get the benefit money from the police. Um yeah. And that's just Danny Glover's cynicism, but then and Murta's cynicism, and then after that scene in the car park where uh, he has the gun and he says, "Put it in your mouth, put it in your mouth. You're going to do it, do the job properly." And he like, and then he does, he clicks it, and and then Danny Glover says he's emptied the barrel, but Riggs doesn't know that at that point. Um, and I think that 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 scene is for me is one of the most perfect 
uh, walk the lines of 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 humor and seriousness you know how how close they get to it's a funny yeah. scene and then at the end they completely like richard Donner just completely flips it on its head again and then it's and it becomes really sad and serious yeah oh yeah because the the scene where um Myrtle's daring Riggs to do you know do it do it yeah the scene immediately prior to that is the uh jumper scene isn't it where there's a guy on the roof Yes, of course, with Mel, yeah, yeah. Who's who's about to jump off. And that's got so many cool little lines in it. that, uh, And this is the other thing I think that uh, Rush Hour and especially Kiss Kiss Bang Bang have borrowed from the Lethal Weapon film. It's these rapid fire exchanges between the two characters. Yeah. That they kind of blink and you'll miss them. Um, Yeah. And uh, there's this one bit where Mel Gibson's handing this guy a cigarette and they're on top of the roof, and the guy's threatening to jump off. And he, he's handing this guy a cigarette, and he says, "Well, if we take our time, we might both die of cancer." <laughs> I just, yeah. It's just a tiny little throwaway line that's sort of meant to make light of a situation that is very serious, but yeah. it does it in a very, very cool sort of knowing way. Um, which again, I, this film just I, there's a reason I, I watch it most most years. I'll I'll watch it at least once. Uh, yeah, just because there's I, so I think, many little bits that you pick yeah. up on. I think that's one of my favourite scenes, not only in this film, but I think in in action films throughout the years, the rooftop scene, one of my favourites, because it it does all those things of combining, um, you know, like we say, the mental state of Riggs, the cynicism of the world that we're in at the time. It's sarcastic. Uh, it's written really well. Yeah. Um, you've got, you know, we don't really find out about the man that's up there, but the man that's up there is obviously in another, in, in his own, his own situation. Um, and Riggs kind of does that thing of, I guess it's that kind of human thing of going, you think you've got problems, I've got problems. You see yeah. that guy down there? That's my boss down there. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, I really like how he kind of draws the real situation to something really tragic as, you know, compelling as someone who's going to kill themselves. But yeah. Riggs manages to make that that almost whimsical and, and plays it for laughs. And then the jump is... I still think it's like, you don't really think he's going to do it, do you? Oh, no, he is. He's going to do it. <laughs> and yeah. he does it. He does it. And it's that in, in jumping off, he shows the guy that in reality he never really wanted to jump. No. You know, he wanted to live, so he's showing the guy he wanted to live, and then uh, <laughs> when they because they jump and they they land in sort of like this air cushioned thing, mm. don't they? This air yeah, cushioned yeah. mat, and you can hear just and it, I, half of this is just dialogue that's captured in it, some of it might not have been intentional uh, ad lib dialogue because there's a lot of that in the Lethal Weapon franchise as it goes on. A lot more of it becomes ad libbed because they realised you know Mel Gibson's just kind of a naturally funny character when he want, yeah. when he's on set. So they yeah. re- they use that to to the their advantage. So you hear Mel Gibson going, Woo and wanna go again? And then as they're getting <laughs> off the mat, he says, Those are my cuffs, I want them back. <laughs> so I yeah I I was gonna say to you earlier like this the script's superb because it's what even though you say there's so much in this that probably wasn't scripted anyway, but as a film, it's so quotable. Like, there's just so much in there that's so good. Yeah. Um, there's the line again. I, I missed earlier, but um, when he's with the drug dealers and he says, um, "Yeah, I'm a real cop. This is a real badge. This is a real fucking gun." <laughs> Which I just <laughs> yes. think's really. It's so simple, but it works really well. And you just think, 
Is he the first person that ever said that in a movie? Like, surely that line's been used before. It hasn't. That's just the line that you, you made just, up. You know, that's just yeah. the line that's in that film. And it, it is. It's like there are all those classic movies where you, um, you know, like, like what's the famous one? Um, a Few Good Men. Mm. With the truth, you can't handle the truth. Yeah. And it's become synonymous. And you almost, the lines become so famous in these movies that you forget the source in which they came from. I mean, Jerry Maguire and the, you had me at hello. Like, yeah. those lines are so iconic that they become more iconic than the source material or the movie that they're, they're in. It's, it's crazy, isn't it? Oh, I, love, yeah. I love clever lines. There's one where they go to Riggs, uh, sorry, Riggs goes to Murta's house for tea and um and rings is uh, murder's daughter says daddy is he a crook and he goes no honey that's my new partner <laughs> <laughs> yes. and i just thought it was really good it's that, a really quick line that is yeah that scene as well with the family it's yeah we, we talked about uh the, the last week we talked about the batman lego movie having a lot of heart <clears throat> And yeah. this scene is just all heart, isn't it? It it could just yeah. be like a a regular kind of sitcommy scene, uh, to two people getting to know each other and getting to know one of them's family, and they end up uh, sitting in the boat talking yeah, about yeah. stuff and and trying to figure out what's going on. And um, it's it's really nice. They have um, they just have a really nice meal, and then as the you're basically the audience is almost at that point forgetting some of the dark plot line of the film and then just as that scene's about to end you've got mel gibson getting in his car and uh danny glover's character says i'll trust you tomorrow if you can get through the day without killing anybody me or yourself and mel gibson just turns around and says i'm really good at it you know and it, it the, the the film turns on a dime again, and it becomes really yeah. dark. And he talks about his his past as a sniper. Yeah. And you and you think, oh gosh, yeah, this guy. You know, the the name of the film is Lethal Weapon, and Mel's character is the Lethal Weapon. Yeah, they do use and, the line, the actual line, don't they? Where he says, um, "You know, martial arts. What are you? Some sort of lethal weapon?" <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, it's it it's it's in. I just love that that it lulls you into this false sense of security. They've been joking about how uh, Roger's daughter's not allowed to date this guy because he's got uh, he's got dimples that make think, <laughs> make Roger think he can see through his face. All these little <laughs> funny jokes. They joke about how marijuana should be legal, and yeah. Riggs really doesn't support his dad on uh, Riggs doesn't support her dad on this. It's just yeah. really really funny. And Do you know what? Ben, it, it, Culturally as well, like they've got the uh, end apartheid stickers are in the kitchen. Um, yes. If you notice when when Murta goes into the kitchen, yeah. um, the the idea of yeah, like you say, the marijuana debate, the drinking underage debate. Um, he there's loads of things there where it's just really cleverly written. And then there's there's a scene later on, and I was really thinking about this. I had to Google it where the um, where they go to the prostitute's house. And yeah. the the children, I think most of whom are, are black or mixed race, say to, they say, oh, uh, are you a cop? He's like, yeah, I'm a cop. He's yeah. like, my mummy says that cops only kill black people. And and then like they kind of wash the line off. And I was thinking, oh, I wonder, like, is this L.A. riots? Is this like alluding to the L.A. riots? And I, then I Googled it and it's L.A. riots are years later. It's 92, isn't it? Yeah. So I was like... 
they even in Los Angeles then they were like pressing that issue of they're very conscious of the problems with the LAPD and the distrust between that community, do you know? And I yeah. thought, God, in that weird day, that was 87 and they're talking about this and it was, it was even worse in 92. Yeah. Uh, the bet, height of the LA riots. That's something that the, the franchise never really shied away from talking no. about, you know, things that were, because the next film is all about South Africans. And yes. Apartheid. Yeah. Of course, drug, so, yeah. 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 So, you know, th- this was almost a bit of foreshadowing uh, with the anti-apartheid stickers and things like that. So, yeah, I, I think the, the 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 films in general are, are are smartly written, really well executed, and they have so much commentary on the time. They're they're like little time capsules. They're, yeah, uh, they're they're really good that way. So um, after after the, he's had what I think he described as his worst meal ever, Riggs then comes back the next day and wakes and wakes Murtaugh up with a coffee, and, and Murtaugh says, "What time is it?" And Riggs just says, "It's daytime. It's try, it's time to get up and be police officers now." And I just, Again, it's just yeah. these really fast little jokes. They're they're brilliant, um, yeah. and they they then go to a gun range and have another conversation about what they think's going on. Uh, Riggs gets to show off what an ace shot he is by shooting a smiley face in one of the targets. Yeah, I like that a lot. It's sort of like that. That's the closest this film gets in some ways to sort of like the Arnold Schwarzenegger Terminator style uh, bravado eighties, you know hoorah aren't we tough guys kind of mentality because the rest of the time the uh the they're basically more like the the bruce willis-esque heroes that are just regular guys that happen to be able to survive things i was thinking that because i liked it's refreshing isn't it because even now and it's 2021 like you don't get that many films where the characters are ordinary people doing ordinary jobs with yeah. real stories with real families with real vulnerabilities in the case of Riggs like we've kind of got desensitized to that and now we have in every film whether it be a Marvel comics movie or, or mm. a um, Fast and the Furious film god um <laughs> The, the the superstars they're they're superhuman aren't they they're larger than yeah. life nothing can hurt them like we were talking about that thing about um this is a bit of a tangent but james and i were talking about um the problem with fast and furious is that vin diesel and the other action heroes like the rock they can't be hurt and they can't lose a fight mm. because that would then take from their superhuman ability uh, as a as an action star they can't be beaten um, yeah. because who's going to pay money to see the main character Vin Diesel if he can be beaten up by a regular Joe um, and, I, and I and I hate that like I feel like we've moved so far away from reality in these movies that actually when you go back and watch Lethal Weapon and you see that it's an 80s film about cops um, the story is I guess semi-plausible but the action is larger than, than life like things do happen that are a little bit crazy in it but yeah um, it tends to do that very clever thing of of steering just close enough to reality mm. um, that any of it's plausible. Do you know what I mean? Like it, it's it's daft, but it could happen. <laughs> Absolutely. No, I think there's there's so much to this film and some sort of you know eighties and especially in, towards the nineties where some plots were obviously ridiculous and criticisms leveled at those. But I don't think you can yeah. level the same criticism here. And I think, like you say, some more modern films would do things very differently. If this, say they made Lethal Weapon this year, 
Yeah. There'd be certain things I reckon where, um, for example, the uh, spoiler alert, but towards the end where uh, the bad guys think Riggs is dead and he's not. He's just some some way away with a sniper rifle. I reckon in a modern film, it would have been his plan to be caught mm. and he would have flipped the switch on the bad guys that way. Whereas in this film, he's not invulnerable. He doesn't really have all that much of a plan. He makes it up as he goes along and gets out of the yeah. situation through his ingenuity at that stage, not because he yeah. planned to be there. And I think that's really that, that's a really key difference. Like In modern films, it seems like the protagonist, whether they're male or female, but the protagonist always seems to be exactly where they want to be and in control of the situation, mm-hmm. and they know a way out of the situation if they need it, and it, yeah. everything just goes perfectly for them. Yeah, you, what you mean uh, there is by like reassessing, especially in the final act of a lot of Hollywood movies, is that the, the hero or protagonist character is almost attacking the bad guy by the end of it, as opposed to defending their own self or defending someone else. Um, like, yeah, like in a lot of action in and comic book movies, it used to be the case, and often it still is the case, that a, a superhero will have to bend the knee yeah. to a villain because a villain has got a hold over either something or someone that the protagonist needs or loves or wants to save. Yeah. Um, I, and, and yeah, like and this obviously invokes that idea with, with the daughter, but but more than that, it's not like it's not like Rianne's character is is harmed in the film. She's taken, but she's not actually harmed, is she? Not, no, no. And then Riggs, Riggs is really harmed. Like he's electrocuted, and and Murta is beaten up and tortured. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of like you say, we we do we do show the real vulnerability and the the humanity of our, our protagonist. Our protagonist can be killed, they can be injured. Yeah, there, there's a real risk there. And I, I love the, the, the line in one of my notes that I've put, the line that stood out at that point where um, the daughter, Rihanna, is in danger. And the main bad guy turns to Murtaugh and says, there are no heroes anymore. And it's yeah. at that point that Riggs bursts through the door. And rather than taking out the bad guy, he focuses on the, well, taking out the main bad guy, he focuses on the immediate threat, and literally, he doesn't do anything heroic in that scene, in mm. a sense, he's, he's absolutely brutal, he, he snaps a guy's neck, and it's just like, yeah, there are no heroes anymore, there's just this one yeah. crazy person, effectively, who's willing to do anything to protect the people that he cares about. He's not a hero, he's kind of an anti-hero, because he is, he's obviously in his past, effectively been as bad as the bad guys are mm-hmm. uh, in what he's done. But he's, to coin that phrase from Batman, he's the hero they need right now. Yeah, exactly. And he, and and he just necessity. Yeah, and it's, like I say, it just feels kind of refreshing that this film isn't clean cut. Like, the... You, you definitely know that the bad guys are bad and that at the very least, Murtaugh is good, but Murtaugh has to team up with someone who goes so against his own principles mm-hmm. in yeah. order to get things done. And I like that. There's, there's there's this real clashing of ideas, and that doesn't seem to happen in, in modern films. It seems like people are... you know Even, say, something like uh, the, the 
going back to the Marvel stuff, you look at Civil War, there actually didn't always seem to be that much of a clash of ideas. It was just, it was people saw each other's point and then fought over it. And yeah. it, was, it wasn't like yeah. I fundamentally disagree. It's like I understand your position, but I really need to get to that jet. They, they <laughs> were very, yeah, they were very careful in that movie to make sure that our heroes didn't fight to the point that would upset younger viewers. Um, yeah. For example, like I think Hawkeye and Black Widow make a little joke while they're fighting each other. And you're like, okay, they're not really fighting each other. So yeah. that you say you do do that thing in sort of a woke. Um, sort of pg era where they you can't have too much happening you can't have too much risk and you also don't want to harm um upset the audience who you're present you know you're thinking about all the time and i and i feel like you need a target audience but you shouldn't necessarily pander to your audience all the time with the film but i do feel like that's a tangent probably saved for another day yeah Um, no definitely but i think it just it our point i guess is that this film you can level a lot of criticism at like mm. 80s action movies and this film dodges the majority of it, I mm-hmm. would say. And, and it feels better for it. Yeah, definitely. I There's a few things I really enjoy that are coming up. Uh, there's a there's a constant allusion to the fact that Trisha's cooking is crap. Yes. Uh, this joke <laughs> is made multiple times by Murta and Riggs and the kids, I think, as well. Yeah. Um, I don't know why it's it's relevant. <laughs> Darlene Love plays Trish, um, and Darlene Love coincidentally wrote my favorite Christmas song. I think she's great. I think that's my favorite. Yeah. You know, uh, um, Baby, please come home. I think that's my yeah. favorite Christmas song. Um, and she's great. She's so wonderful in this in this movie as well. She, yeah, it's really good acting. She she plays that sort of matriarch figure, like uh, Roger probably thinks he's in charge. Of, in fact, I, I yeah. put down that. Um, Life just happens to Roger. <laughs> he seems yeah. completely out of control of everything. He he can't control Riggs. He can't control Rianne. He <laughs> thinks he's head of the house, but really it's he's Trish. not. Yeah. No, <laughs> sorry, go on. And later in in the franchise, they they, they play on this again. Uh, I think it's in the fourth film where there's a bunch of internal affairs investigations going on into. Uh, Murtaugh and how he's able to afford to keep rebuilding his home because in every film it gets trashed <laughs> it, it turns out that uh, Trish has started writing these really raunchy novels <laughs> and they're cashing in on these raunchy novels that's excellent <laughs> and it's all, it, it, Murtaugh's so embarrassed by it he sort of hides the fact and she's, she's writing under an assumed name as well so no one knows that it's her so initially uh people think he's having an affair as well so it, it it gets really convoluted and it all comes out in a big gunfight where Riggs and Murta are shouting at each other about this this idea that he's on the take uh but yeah so they, they really play on the fact that Murta actually isn't in charge of his own house he's not in charge of his own life half the time and yeah. he gets stuck with this terrible <clears throat> cooking and he can't do anything about it there's um another bit with uh when when Murta gets the uh, yearbook sent to him with Amanda in it. Um, mm. I-, I don't know whether it's played for the audience's benefit, but 
the photo of Amanda in the yearbook is really shit. I mean, she's facing the wrong way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know if that's just so that she stands out when the audience see the yearbook and they can completely quickly identify the one girl on the picture that's facing the wrong way to all the other people. It's great, isn't um, it? It's like, if that yeah. was your yearbook photo, you're like, oh, great. So there's no record she's of She's sort me. of looking sexy, pouting, and looking off to the left with her back turned to the camera. Like, that's not a yearbook. No. <laughs> Who made this thing? <laughs> Uh, I also noticed, and I don't know whether it's complete coincidence, um, Shane Black, who obviously wrote the movie and wrote Iron Man 3, he does an Iron Man 3 in this film. He does exactly the same thing that happens in Iron Man 3, happens in Lethal Weapon. Uh, And I'm talking about the helicopter um, flying up to the mansion in Malibu and shooting at the mansion while the characters are inside. That literally happens in Iron Man 3. It's brilliant, isn't it? When you see that, you go, oh, you've done this before. He did that. He did that already. This film, like, intentionally and unintentionally references so many other films. Mm. And, like, a lot of the films it references hadn't happened yet. <laughs> so, for example, when they're at that sort of Malibu mansion, before the helicopter arrives, they find out a lot of the plot details there. Yeah, There's a big like sort of info dump. And yeah. it talks about how this, this squad of people came together, they were ex-CIA mercenaries, and it talks about something called Air America. Now, years from when this film's made, there's a film made called Air America starring one Mel Gibson and Robert Downey Jr. Oh, really? Yeah, and Air America tells the story of these pilots that were working in Laos outside of Vietnam, you know, claiming that there's no war in Laos. But what they would do is they they would run guns and things, claiming just to be regular delivery pilots, like a postal system working through planes. Yeah. And uh, it's all funded by the CIA, and it stars... Um, oh, I forget the actor's name, but in Scrubs he played the... Um, he played the head doctor, the, the, the head of medicine. Oh, yeah, the old the, guy, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so he's in it yeah. as like a, a, a general that's trying to make all these heroin deals and you've got uh Mel Gibson and Robert Downey Jr. and it's it's fantastic and that's referenced in that and then the um the 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 fact that these things are obviously they were real events so they were bound to have a film made about them at some point I guess but the yeah. fact that it stars the, some of the same actors is just perfect it's strange yeah it's it's odd when stuff like that happens isn't it um yeah like you say it's like that film you just described was the film is the story that is described to murder by his friend in in the malibu house that's funny isn't it there's yeah. loads of weird stuff like that happens i remember thinking very clearly at the end when they're in the desert and rianne is getting captured by the bad guys the um the, the that trope of being in the middle of a desert where you are miles from help uh, and where everyone can see you no matter which direction you run in is very uh, it's been done to death hasn't it but I can't I wonder if this is one of the earliest points in which that had been done because I mean most commonly the one I always think back to is Seven which I think was late 90s where yeah. they take uh, the Kevin Spacey's character out into the desert um, and, it, and it happens in this and you're like oh is that that's just one of those things that's been done and done and done but I wonder if this was the, sort of the first instance in which it was in which it was done yeah, and again, uh, uh, another film starring Danny Glover, um, Shooter. Mm. There's yeah. a, a scene in that where he says, I-, I want to meet you in a place where I can see you coming from a mile away. 
And so they have a similar scene where Danny Glover stood by a helicopter waiting for someone else to turn up. It's just in this in that film, he's a bad guy. Um, so, <laughs> yeah. so they sort of turn that that scene on its head. But that shot where it's sort of a really long lens and you can see the oh, like the distortion of the heat rising yeah, off through the, the atmosphere. And you just see the helicopter and, and all the trucks uh, arriving in, in this sort of motorcade. It's... It's a really good shot. I really like yeah. it. It's very epic that end that that scene in the desert, and it it kind of harks back to Richard Donner's Superman. How he he's very conscious about what he puts in the frame and how mm. big that frame is. I guess the person that does that the most now is probably like Christopher Nolan or um, or Denny Villeneuve with with Dune, where you're very conscious about. This is a big frame. It's going to look big on the big screen. I'm going yeah. to put as much in this frame as possible and make it look as beautiful as possible. Make the shot really look um, epic and big and you know and grand. Why not? It's a big yeah. film. I want to make this look big. Yeah, uh, no, so I, think I really enjoyed it, that. It's a it's a it's a great scene, um, and uh, it, it's all made possible because at, at this point they think that Riggs is dead because they've done a drive-by yeah. effectively and, and shot Riggs and it includes one of my other favourite lines where uh, Riggs has survived the shooting because he's wearing a bulletproof vest mm-hmm. and Myrtle runs over and says yeah, two, two inches higher and that could have been it for you and then Riggs says two inches lower and I could have been a falsetto for life it's <laughs> <laughs> great isn't it I like it when Rihanna escapes from the limo runs about three feet and trips over cliche yeah, that is the only sort of downside to the, to the, this scene. I think is yeah. that Rihanna is really painted as someone's completely helpless. Uh, oh, they I do, know. they do, they do do her better in later films. I think they they don't really do give her much of a chance to be a, a a a good character in this film. She is just sort of a plot device. But I have a little bit of a problem with the over sexualization of the Rihanna daughter character. In yeah. this film, I I feel like I I don't know. I get the joke from the side of Danny Glover, who is protective of his daughter, who may now be going into that teenage or young adult side of her life where she wants to date boys and blah blah blah. Uh, so I get that jokiness on the dad's side. You know, he's a dad; yeah. you can't really see her like that because she. How could she be a woman? She's my little girl type thing. But that's been done a million times as well in films, hasn't it? So yeah. I don't know whether I like it, but I also find when obviously there's a sexual tension between Riggs uh, and and Rianne, um, yeah. at the dinner table and at the in, at, at the door scene later on in the film. And 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 obviously watching that, I know that that Tracy Wolf, who plays Rianne, is is much older than she is in the, in the film. But I yeah. also can't help but think there's something really weird about it. Like I get really uncomfortable when I'm like, right, Riggs, you've been married, you're an old man. She's yeah. a minor, and she's your partner's daughter. Go away. And he never does anything. He never steps no. out of line. But it's that I don't know. I think I just don't like the insinuation of those yeah. moments in the film. You know where like she's I, just eyeballing Riggs all the time. It's just can it, only, it's just me. No, no, it's not just you. It is weird, and I can only imagine that the reason it's there. And I don't even know if it would have been because there's a lot that I've done in reading about the film that mm. suggests that Shane Black's original script was even darker than what was made into a film. So Don't some know. Of, yeah, <laughs> some some of the things that happen in this that are more light-hearted like that I think are part of a rewrite. And yeah. I guess it only makes sense when you consider like you say the 
actress playing Rianne is, I think she was 25 when they made mm-hmm. the film, uh, but obviously meant to be playing a much younger character. Uh, yeah. Mel Gibson was supposedly uh, playing a 38-year-old Martin Riggs, mm-hmm. but in actuality, he was 30. So yes, I their, noticed. Their real ages yeah. were probably closer, so maybe on set it kind of made sense if you forgot the story that they were playing out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, you this is what I mean. Yeah. yeah, I know that he's a young, handsome bloke. Mel Gibson is prime with his mullet. And I know that Tracy Wolf is probably in her mid-twenties, but there's just something in the script side of it that I yeah. couldn't reconcile. I just didn't Absolutely. like it. It made me uncomfortable. It's like, right, stop the stop with the daughter stuff. You've done it three times now, Richard. <laughs> stop it. I think they sort of get a little bit... Because this is in no way as weird and creepy as some of the stuff that, say, Michael Bay does. With no, definitely over, not. Over-sexualising yeah. women. But, yeah. I, and I think it's done slightly smarter than it could have been because... Because Riggs never, you know, reciprocates, it, mm. it it's played more that Rianne has a crush on him. Yeah, and it's not like he's okay. making. It's not like he's making the moves. So I think no, they get away I, yeah. with it that way. But it is a little bit creepy and icky, especially when <laughs> I think Riggs uses it to taunt Murtaugh at the end. Where he says, "You know, I think Rianne likes me." <laughs> and Riggs just, and Murtaugh's just like. If you do anything, I'll kill you. And Rick says you yeah. try, and uh, <laughs> and I just it, it's quite a nice little bit of banter. And then we yeah. finally see the dog again. The dog makes it. It's like second oh. appearance in the film. The dog comes in and probably at this point, Jake gets fed, even though it might be Trisha's bad Christmas meal. At uh, least the dog gets. Yeah, so the dog gets fed there. Going back to the uh, Tracy Wolf and uh, Mel Gibson thing, I I. Obviously, googled the cast when I was looking for facts about the movie. Uh, Tracy Wolf obviously is a teenager, inverted commas, in this movie. Yeah. She's 61, James. She's yeah. 61 in real life. And I Crazy, remember reading right? it and thinking, oh, I can't be right. Yeah. <laughs> so I went back and googled it. I was like, no, no, it's definitely the same woman. She's 65. And it kind of blows your mind that it was that long ago, 87. It just, just, I just, yeah. And that really made me feel weird. Uh, Mel's 65. Danny Glover's 75, I think now. Yeah. Um. So a lot of, a lot of, um, yeah, they're getting on. They're getting on is what I'm saying. I, I um, realise, Jake, we're, we're about half an hour into discussing this film at this point, And we've not mentioned the one, the only, the absolutely bonkers Gary Busey. I know, I knew you were going to say it. Do you know what? I was going to save it because I didn't know how you felt, but screw it. You know what? We'll just go. We've done the film. I'm happy with that. Um, Well, nearly. We've nearly done the film. Gary Busey. What the hell? Why is Gary Busey the bad guy in Lethal Weapon? Do you know when I first watched it again and I kind of forgot it was him, then you kind of remember who Gary Busey is um, yeah. and what we know about him as a person now. I mean, he's mad, isn't he? Like, oh, yeah. He he would be, you know, and I think he he said himself he was chosen because he would be a a good counterpoint at the time to, to Mel Gibson. He would be someone who would be uh, thought of as, as a good potential threat. And his his character portrayal in this is actually... Brilliant. This the uh, the first scene you see his character who just goes by the name Mr. Joshua in the yeah. in the film. The first time you see him and he uh, it's in that nightclub, and uh, the main bad guy asks Mr. Joshua to hold out his hand and he just holds it over a cigarette Flame. lighter. Yeah. And 
I think that scene, the, the same way this film made me really appreciate Mel Gibson's acting work, made me actually genuinely scared of Gary Busey for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just couldn't ever see him as anything that, you know, any, any other role where he was anything but a bad guy. Yeah, and he and he's played some really great bad guys. I mean, he played again in, against Danny Glover in Predator Two as a bad yeah. guy, and you know it was interesting because Danny Glover's a cop in that film, and uh, Gary Busey's a, a, an ex sort of marine uh, mercenary type in the film again. So they're almost typecast in that role. But uh, no, Gary Busey is that. There's some great scenes towards the end where. <laughs> Gary Busey's running away from Mel Gibson on the freeway, and he opens this car door, points the the biggest machine gun I've ever seen at the passenger, and just uh, yells, "Mind if I test drive your Audi?" Yeah, <laughs> and, and gets great. the guy to go out, and then uh, and then when he enters Murtaugh's house later, and the TV's playing, and someone on the TV says, uh, "It's it's Scrooge happening on the TV," and Scrooge yes. says, "What day is it?" And he just shoots the TV and yells, "It's goddamn Christmas!" Yeah, and it's just I, I really Gary like Busey that bit. all over. <laughs> I love it. It's just peak Gary Busey going absolutely mental. I I enjoyed the end so, of the film a lot. Obviously, Gary Busey. One of the weirdest things about the man is that he looks like a caricature of a person like when a teenager is drawing a picture of a, what a person should look like they end up drawing something like Gary Busey um <laughs> he, ah, I, I always I always remember like film wise I always think of him in point break um yes. and this um he's his son is also a really good actor I'm not taking anything away from Busey's acting ability he is great what I'm more interested in James is the story about Gary Busey that I read. Um, <laughs> I can't I'm wait just, to hear this. <laughs> I'm going to just put this out there. This is a year after this film came out. Gary Busey had a near-death experience in the year 1988. It is said that he came off his Harley Davidson and was pronounced dead. He states that whilst dead, he travelled into a spiritual plane where he was approached by little balls of light that spoke to him with androgynous voices telling him that his time was not yet done and sent him back to the world. Uh, he was then brought back to life. Uh, I don't really know enough about it to know whether half of it's bullshit or if some of it's real, you know? like Yeah. Um, there I, are it, lots of stories. It, uh, it's just very strange. Very it sounds strange. very Gary Busey. Apparently he, he credits uh, Lethal Weapon as the, the film that sort of saved his ailing career because he'd obviously done films prior to this and he was he he wasn't sort of he, he came up in the era of the big 80s action stars and that was never him mm-hmm. and then he found i think he found his niche he would be the best creepiest cringiest bad guy you could ever f- cast in your film mm-hmm. and he ju- he would just fit in like you say he he did a a, a brilliant job in point break Predator yeah. Two, and Under Siege. Yeah, yeah, he, also great. He was he was probably the only person who could make Tommy Lee Jones's acting in that film seem grounded. You know, you've got Gary Busey and Tommy Lee Jones who are both bouncing off each other in the weirdest, wonderful way, and 
he's he's just a really interesting whenever you see him on screen you can't take your eyes off him because he's that <laughs> interesting you want to see what he's about to do and it's probably going to be a silly thing but it it's just i don't know he he's a a really joyful bad guy like you enjoy yeah. seeing him get beaten he's he is like Hans Gruber in Die Hard. You enjoy yeah. watching him get beaten, but you actually enjoy him being a bit maniacal as well because yeah. he's great at it. Um, so yeah, I I really like um, I really like Gary Busey, and I, I thought we we definitely needed to dedicate some time to him. Can I can I give you one more Gary Busey story, please? James? Oh, absolutely! I love Gary Busey stories. <laughs> I feel like we're going to get complaints about all the Gary Busey stories I've found, but my God, this one's good. <laughs> Um, this was during his rehab, um, whilst telling uh, his rehab about his drug use um, in the 90s. This was a low point for him. He spilled a lot of cocaine on his dog. <laughs> and I quote, I went in there like a crop duster man. <laughs> oh, Nose flying first and I snorted off all that cocaine off the back of the dog. Not a spot was left. It took me about 25 minutes to snore all the cocaine the dog had on her coat. The fringe benefits of this were the fleas, dog hair and the mud and the sweat that went into my nose too. It's not a good a good flavour coming off that dog. I believe the etiquette of rehab requires us to respond with, thank you for sharing your story, Gary. <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, what a weird no, story. I mean... Absolutely. Oh, God. Like I say, we, we talked about how this film avoids some of the excesses of the 80s in, in yeah, certain yeah. ways, in terms of the storytelling. <laughs> but everyone involved in this film seems to have basically been destroyed by the excess of the 80s. Yeah, uh, definitely. Which is... It, it's, <clears throat> oh, it, it's an, the film being as tightly woven as it is, is an absolute miracle when you consider how loosey-goosey everybody involved in it was. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's, it's, it's brilliant. It's, it's an achievement. And uh, uh, the fight at the end of the film between Mel Gibson and Gary Busey is great. Really tense. Um, you, it's got almost like a found footage feel to it towards the end. Because yeah. you... You start to see the fight from the perspective of all these cops that are turning up, so the cameras well, it, are actually. It turns in the car. out it's like backyard wrestling by the end. Um, yeah. I remember thinking as well that I couldn't remember why Riggs is fighting Gary Busey in the rain, and then I realised at the end, like when I watched it back this time, it wasn't the rain. They they, they knock the fire hydrant over, don't they, on the way in? Uh, yeah. And you see the fire hydrant go when the cops get killed. I didn't notice that ever before, so I was like, oh, that's why there's water everywhere when they're outside. So that was clever. Yeah. I also don't know why Riggs has to like smash the police car through Murta's house, through the living room. <laughs> Could he not have just gone through the door? <laughs> Could have done. But it's a great payoff to that little sign that uh, Busey yeah. finds on the christmas tree that says sorry bad guys there's no one here just us cops <laughs> which i really enjoyed it's, it's the it's like the uh again lots of diehard references the ho 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 i have a shotgun sign yeah uh it, it's very similar in in feel to that i like it and the the uh the fight um i i believe i read somewhere that donna wanted the end scene to be really dramatic and they actually ended up deliberately using lots of different mixed martial arts moves to show off that these two 
characters were sort of ex-military mercenary types. Yeah, well-trained uh, people. Well-trained. And yeah, I thought it was, it was brilliantly well done. It was the it, kind of that sort of uh, heroic pride thing of, I don't want anyone else to get him, I want to get him. And then at the end, both Riggs and Murtaugh shoot him. Mm. So yeah, it, they do, yeah. They, they sort of, that's like solidifying them as a partnership. Um, at the end, which I I, I really like, because obviously Riggs at that point is really beaten up and weak, and Murtaugh's supporting him, and I, mm-hmm. it, it's it's a it's a nice sort of poetic way, albeit a very violent poem, uh, <laughs> a nice poetic way for it to to end uh, the the journey that they've been on. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, yeah, and that's Lethal Weapon. It, yeah, it's just so enjoyable. Then it finishes with Christmas. Um, and I think that if you want a slightly different Christmas film, but don't want to have to keep sitting down and watching Die Hard uh, with the people insisting on the argument as to whether Die Hard is or isn't a Christmas film, go back a year earlier, 1987, yeah. watch Lethal Weapon instead. <laughs> yeah. I, th- I think it's an absolutely valid Christmas film, is Lethal yeah. Weapon. It's it's <clears throat> it's the... Uh, and I think, we like I say, we've made loads of Die Hard references, but it, it's very telling that some of the same people were involved across those two films. Because they, yeah. they have uh, that... I think it's a sense of spectacle. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a, a movie as an event. And some movies get that. Some movies get that they're meant to be these big events that take you out of your existence and let you enjoy somebody else's life for a little bit. And both those movies mm. do that because both characters, uh, both central characters are, are really relatable. And as is you know Bruce Willis's character in in Die Hard. So I yeah. think it's 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 one one of the things that makes this film really successful. Plus the fact that it, it ends with a cat and a dog having a fight and Danny Glover <laughs> muttering that he's too old for this shit. Um, I think yeah. is just the perfect end <laughs> to any film. they're in the the process of rebuilding the Murtaugh family home and Riggs just lets his dog in to chase the cat (laughs) I just love it it's like he's still causing chaos even after all the chaos is over Um, should we do the five facts let's do five facts Jake Right, five facts that I've learned. And obviously feel free to chip in because they might be ones that you know or you might think they're boring. Um, <laughs> this is in relation to the script that Shane Black wrote for the original uh, his original conception for Lethal Weapon. Um, it did deviate quite a lot from... Um, from the original, from what we end up with, uh, I think lots of scenes were taken out of the movie due to um, you know, the the money it was going to cost to make. Uh, in tone, they say that it was much darker and didn't have much light relief in it at all. Um, there was a big chase sequence across the city, including a police helicopter getting blown up by Joshua, um, right. a napalm missile. Um, fires at the helicopter, causing the uh, sorry a helicopter full of um, full of the heroin which crashes into the Hollywood sign, starts a huge fire, which then um, a truck blows up. and It's just crazy, but apparently yeah. it ends It ends with the Hollywood Hills being covered in white snow 
um, but it's not actually snow. It's heroin, and it snows heroin in Hollywood. Um, and apparently, and this is I'm not making this up. Riggs kills Joshua by stabbing his fingers through Joshua's eyes right into his brain, and they decided it was a bit too violent. Yeah, um, I can see why Warner Brothers thought maybe uh, this won't fly in the cinemas. Yeah, no, that that's yeah that um, just so many stories about the alternate versions of the script um, that, you know, there was supposedly a scene where Riggs fires a rocket launcher to kill a sniper who's killing school children. Uh, It's just bonkers things that they could have done. But again, thankfully, the team that made this were really strong. It wasn't like a, a studio was deciding all the decisions or a director was getting to run wild with all of his ideas or a screenwriter. It seems like everyone made all the right intelligent compromises to make mm-hmm. a good film so yeah excellent um they were talking about the running gag of the series in which one two three start uh, false starts yeah uh, where Riggs and murta can't decide whether to go on one two three or one two three go um the gag doesn't even exist in this film but there is a one two three false start in the movie and it happens when the uniformed cops are trying yes. to get the other guys to sing Silent Night in the chorus, uh, and one cop to keep starting too soon, uh, which I really liked. I thought it was really good. Um, and what was my third fact? Yes, this was in relation to the opening scene with Jackie Swanson, the actress that plays Amanda. Yes. Um, she performed the fall from the tower on her own, uh, trained by legendary stuntman Dar Robinson. Um, the stunt was done using an airbag, that she fell onto, it was covered with a life-size map painting of driveways and cars below to make it look visually like the car was, you know, like the street below her. Yeah. Um, and apparently the editor just held the shot long enough before Jackie hits the actual airbag so you don't notice that she's hitting an airbag when she falls. Um, and then obviously they threw the dummy out, so you see a dummy fall, Amanda fall, and then the Amanda dummy hitting the top of the car and smashing the car. Yeah. Um, but I thought it was really clever. Like, they did, they do it really well for, for the 80s. Yeah, it's a brilliant <clears throat> scene. And it, it it makes it feel more visceral, the fact that it was happening. You know, it wasn't mm-hmm. a dummy, because, let's face it, we've all seen those 80s films where they use a, a, a human dummy falling, and it just looks... Yeah. It looks awful, because no matter how hard they try, they can't seem to get a dummy to fall out of a building with its legs bent the right way. (laughs) You always see it where the legs are bent the wrong way. (laughs) Yeah, unnaturally bent backwards, so it looks like she broke her her legs whilst falling. Um, What was my other fact? Uh, This was interesting. Um... The legendary Star Trek actor Leonard Nimoy was one of the choices to direct the film. Um, But he said he didn't feel comfortable doing action movies and decided to work on Three Men and a Baby instead. Ah, very very different film. Very different (laughs) film. Um, We did then have the fact about... This is one of my favourite ones because I knew he'd done Hollywood films but I always forget he's in this. Um, Was the extra, well, the, the drug dealer that yes. um, is accosted by Riggs. He is a man called Blackie Dammit. Um, that's his alias. His real name is John Kiedis, mm. um, who is the father of the Red Hot Chili Peppers singer, Anthony Kiedis. And you can tell, can't you, straight away? You can. He has that that look. And it, it's, it's sort of it's those unique. things where you... 
there's obviously a new a number of films where Flea has had a a cameo, mm. and you you're yeah. oh that's Flea, but in this one you're like that face looks familiar. Yeah, <laughs> but I didn't put my finger on it until I read it. Again, and, uh, a man who was famous for supplying um, drugs and good times to the rich and famous of the Hollywood Hills. Um, and like you say, when you think about excess of the 80s, as we keep going back to, you've got Gary Busey in there, <laughs> you've got Mel Gibson in there, and you've got John Keedys in there. Like, I think the after work party at this film was very, very fun. Oh, gosh. Yeah, um, I, I assume that none of the people involved can remember what happened in said after work party. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, um, I'm trying to find my last fact. Sorry, I've lost it then. Um, Yeah, this was... um, In fact, that's boring. I'm going to skip that one. I found loads of little little snippets, but they're not. Some of them are just not as fun as I was hoping. What have you got? Have you got one? Yeah, Give me a good got, fact. I've got one. So, uh, just like his character, uh, Mel Gibson is a big Three Stooges fan, and mm-hmm. he produced a biopic of the Three Stooges in two thousand. So again, it's yeah. so there's that scene uh, again at the uh, drug deal where to distract them, he actually does the Three Stooges thing of of slapping their faces and and poking their their faces. Oh yeah, he does. Yeah, so, of course. So that's that uh, again. Is this film re- referencing films that the people will be involved in ahead of the time? You know how they say there's a Simpsons moment mm. for everything. Yeah. This singular film gets really, really close to being that because <laughs> yeah, there's does. so many things that it's referenced that actually then have gone on Happened. to happen. Um, yeah. So yeah, so I think the uh, I think that's uh, a, a good one where obviously Mel Gibson shared an interest that his character in the film had, and whether that was ad libbed, we don't I don't know. But oh. if it was just written to be part of the character, because Mel wasn't like a really well known actor at this point, obviously he'd done Mad mm-hmm. Max. So I don't think people would have gone, oh, Mel Gibson likes the Three Stooges. Let's write a scene for him where he does the Three Stooges thing. I think it's it's probably something he's brought to the story yeah, or yeah, was definitely. just a pure coincidence. Uh, I did find one, which I, I remember thinking about whilst watching the movie, but never really thought to mention it, is the, um, this film is one of the first films to show a modern cell phone. Um, oh, it's on yes. the bridge when Murta is using it to call into the station. Um, it was a portable Radio Shack model 17 uh, 1003. It launched in 1986, uh, just before the film was filmed. The movie was filmed. Uh, and he uses it on the bridge to speak to HQ. And it's like, oh, yeah, we think about mobile phones in films and mobile phones in real life. But hey, kids. Yeah. that That's your mobile phone right there. You've got I mean, to have strong back to carry it around. <laughs> yeah, it's like a, it's a briefcase phone. It's, it's it huge. ridiculous. Huge. Uh, it's worth going back, actually, watching it just for that scene to see that mobile. It's great. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's everything, James. That's all I got, really. Um, I am looking forward to the sequel, which I haven't, again, I have not watched for about 17 years. So yeah. That'll oh, be good. Fun. Oh, good. No, I... I, I... <sighs> enjoyed going back over this film uh it's it's just it for me it's as close to a perfect action film as i can think of yeah for for everything it's got in it so yeah it's a great film well written definitely recommended and it feels more appropriate because even though it's only november 
the likelihood is we'll probably finish these by Christmas and then we'll be watching them all over again. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, what was I going to say? Yeah, so this was something that James and I were very passionate about um, kind of not discussing, but discussing. Yes. Um, so I have allowed for each Lethal Weapon episode that James can mention a fact about the real Lethal Weapon in this film, um, Mel Gibson. So, you know... I figured let's not dwell on it because think you know everyone makes mistakes, James, don't they? We're all human, but I thought it would be fun for James to just you know drop a little Mel Gibson fact in every episode. So do you want to give us your one Mel Gibson fact before we end Lethal Weapon One? Yes, I think it's probably fair to say that I could have been criticised for being somewhat of a Mel Gibson apologist because I do definitely appreciate the acting skill and the work he's produced outside mm-hmm. of his work <laughs> he is a... sorry i'm sorry <laughs> sorry I, i'm okay outside of his work he's somewhat of an atrocious human being and i've <laughs> I, I think it's only right if we talk about how great his work is we also talk about some of the controversies and i think i've got enough that we can do one at the end of yeah. each film, which is a tragedy in itself that there's enough material to do that. Yeah. But the first one I'm going to talk about is probably the one he is most famous for being an atrocious human being. And that happened in 2006, where okay. Mel Gibson was forced to apologise to an LA police officer who claimed the actor had shouted abuse at him during an arrest, including a claim that, and this is quotation marks, so this is Mel Gibson speaking, not me, uh, the Jews are responsible for all the wars in the world. He later issued an apology asking Jewish people to, uh, for forgiveness. He said, There is no excuse, nor should there be any tolerance for anyone who thinks or expresses any kind of anti-Semitic remark. Uh, and he wrote that in the New York Times. He continued, um, I want to apologise specifically to everyone in the Jewish community for the vitriolic and harmful words that I said to a law enforcement officer the night I was arrested on a DUI charge. I'm a public person, and when I say something, either articulated and thought out or blurted out Mm -hmm. in a moment of insanity, my words carry weight in a public arena. So, sounds like drunk... Hollywood actor says something reprehensible and regrets it. Um, sadly, he his attitude towards the events have changed. And ten years later, he was speaking on a, a, a variety podcast, and he claimed that the arrest had been recorded illegally, uh, saying, "I was loaded and angry and arrested." I was recorded illegally by an unscrupulous police officer who was never prosecuted for that crime, and then it was made public uh, by him for profit and by members of, we'll call it the press. So, not fair. I guess, as who I am, I'm not allowed to have a nervous breakdown ever. So, he initially took responsibility for it and then Mm. said it was part of a nervous breakdown and he was the victim. I mean, makes you we can think, leave it. We we can yeah. leave it at that, James. I think I think you've covered it. I think yeah. we have one Mel Gibson fact a week. Um, yeah, and then yeah, we're, we're not gonna uh, we're not gonna say anything else. No, you play the chicken. You play the chicken in Chicken Run. There's a there's a Mel Gibson fact. <laughs> what a nice jolly way to end. <laughs> I, look, I wanted to give everybody 
a nice fact about yeah. Mel Gibson. No. Um, he played a chicken. He played um, a and chicken. There's and no, and I'm not, very well, not a very me. convincing. I'm not calling him a chicken. I'm not I'm not insulting him and saying that he's cowardly or a chicken. No, the uh, film was Chicken Run and, and he was, it, you know, he was cast a chicken. as a chicken. He was, he was totally. definitely a, a real claymation chicken. Mel, Mel Gibson was a chicken. <laughs> <laughs> no. Please don't make that the title of this episode. <laughs> I'm definitely gonna do that. No, I'm not. Oh. Right, I'll see you guys back for Lethal Weapon 2, and I'll see you, James. Thanks guys. See ya. Bye. 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 Bye.